You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. church in Antioch, and Luke introduces us to this church, you'll remember, because this is the church that is going to eclipse the Jerusalem church in almost every category. It's the church in Antioch that becomes the church of Christianity, so to speak, and it will be for several centuries, and it all begins here in Antioch, all of the world evangelization, the missionary journeys of Paul, all of the rest of the book of Acts is based out of and centered in the city of Antioch and the church in Antioch. And it is a significant church because the church in Antioch introduces us to a lot of firsts in the book of Acts. For instance, the church in Antioch is the first church we read of that was a truly multiracial, international, multi-ethnic, diverse church where Jew and Gentile worshiped together as brothers and sisters in Christ without any racial distinctions between them. Some men who came fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem in connection with Stephen, founded the church by preaching Christ to Greeks. Others had gone there and preached Christ to Jews. And when the church began to grow and these people came together, the apostles sent Barnabas down there. And so you have instituted or founded the first international, really cosmopolitan, interracial denomination. The first one that we read of. Second, it's also the first large church that we read of outside of Jerusalem. This is the first church that we read of that is outside of Jerusalem that grew exponentially like the, like the church in Jerusalem. Large numbers continued to come to the Lord. Paul and Barnabas met there for a year and taught considerable numbers, Luke says. It's a large, growing, exponentially growing church in this massive city of Antioch, which was the third largest in the Roman Empire, a city of over 500,000 people. They had quite a pool of people out of which evangelism took place and quite a pool of people who had come into the church. So it's a large church. It is also the first church that we read of that Paul pastored. You remember that? May I remind you of the irony associated with that? The people who had founded that church had fleed his persecution in Jerusalem that he was overseeing. And they had gone to Antioch and started a church there. And within 15 years, their teaching pastor is the same person who had persecuted them 15 years earlier, Saul of Tarsus. And now he's humbled, he's converted, he's called to be an apostle, and he's preaching the word in Antioch to likely the very people who fled his persecution. So it's the first interracial church, the first large church that we read of outside of Jerusalem. It's the first church that Paul pastored. It's the first church that we read of in church history that sent out missionaries to evangelize and then actively supported those missionaries. First one we read of. And it's also, you'll remember, the first place where the believers were called what? Christians. It was in Antioch. And that's no insignificant detail as we saw last week. So in many ways, the church in Antioch is a very trendy, very cutting edge, very aggressive church. It's up to beat, it's up to speed, it's, it's progressive, it's out there, it's, it's really cutting edge in a lot of ways. And we, you and I might say, well, if it's a cutting edge church, then surely their philosophy of ministry and their way of doing ministry in church must have been radically different than Jerusalem. Was it? Wasn't at all. What was true in Jerusalem? The believers were committed to the apostles' doctrine, to breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. 
Well, those same things characterized the church in Antioch. They were committed to the apostles' doctrine because for a full year, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, who had been sent from the other apostles and brought the apostles' doctrine with him, they taught those believers. So they were committed to the very same thing. But as we saw last week, there were three things that characterized the church, a diverse ethnicity, divine blessing, and diligent instruction. Now this week, we see that there was a fourth thing that characterized this church, and that was their generosity. In Jerusalem, you remember what Luke tells us was true of the believers immediately after Pentecost? It says that they were all together in one place, and as anybody had provisioned, they gave to meet the needs of those who were needy among them. They were a very generous flock. That's in Acts chapter 2. The end of Acts chapter 4, beginning of Acts chapter 5, people were bringing their land and their possessions and selling them, laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet to be distributed amongst the poor. They were a generous, charitable church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch was just like that. Generous, charitable, gracious, giving, liberally giving and benevolent. And and that's what we have an opportunity to see this morning is that their generosity was just like the church in Jerusalem's generosity. Look at Acts chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 27. This whole thing, this whole expression of generosity is, pro- is preceded by and prompted by a prophecy. And that's the first thing I want you to note. First, the prophecy. Verse 27. At this time, that is to say that while Paul and Barnabas were there in Antioch preaching and teaching, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world And this took place in the reign of Claudius. This whole expression of giving comes about as a result of some prophets who came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now that kind of poses some interesting questions for us, doesn't it? What were the prophets? And what did they do? Were there prophets in the early church? And if there were prophets in the early church, what was their function? And should you and I expect to see prophets amongst us here today? Should you and I meet on a Sunday morning and expect somebody to stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord and begin to proclaim a prophetic utterance. So-and-so is going to die in a car accident this week. Or so-and-so is going to lose their job. Or to give to us God's revelation in His mind. Should you and I expect that to happen today? Well, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They actually went up geographically because Antioch was north, but they came down elevation-wise. They came down from Jerusalem, which was higher than Antioch. And so anytime somebody went from Jerusalem anywhere, it was coming down from Jerusalem. When we were traveling back from Idaho Falls this last year on a trip that we made, um, we came across the Continental Divide on our way from Idaho Falls up here to Sandpoint. And it was snowing and it was out in the plains. And we, were, we crossed past the sign that said Continental Divide, elevation. I forget what it was, 5,000, 6,000 feet, something like that. It was way up there. And I turned to Deidre and I said, this is odd. Here we are out in the middle of the plains. We're driving into the mountains and we have to drop 3,000 feet to get into the mountains. It was odd. It felt like I was going up because I was moving geographically north, but I was actually going down into the mountains. And that's the same way it was. Anytime somebody left Jerusalem, they went down. Whether they went east, west, north, south, they went down. So they went down from Jerusalem north to Antioch. Like you and I might say, we came. if you lived in Bonners, you'd say we came down from Schweitzer. We actually went up geographically, right? So they came down from Antioch to Jerusalem. We don't know anything about this group of prophets, but one of them is named for us, Agabus. Now look, we don't know anything about Agabus but this. He gave a prophetic prediction of a famine that would occur, and he also, in Acts chapter 21, gave a prophetic prediction of suffering that Paul would face. 
And he actually gives that prophetic utterance. And the people, the Christians, try to discourage Paul from going to Jerusalem. Because it's Agabus who takes Paul's belt. How he got it off of Paul, I don't know. He takes Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and he says, the Gentile Jews are going to bind the man's hands who owns this belt. And it was a prophetic utterance to Paul, trying to discourage him from going to Jerusalem where Paul was later arrested and then sent to Rome. Now, we don't know anything about Agabus other than those two things. Those were the two things that he did. I wish I was told a lot more about him. Who was he? Where did he come from? What other ministry did he have? Where was he based out of? Who did he know? Who was he related to? Something that would give us the ability to place together some details about who this Agabus is. But what is interesting is that we get to see a New Testament prophet actually functioning in a prophetic role, and you and I get to see what that looks like in Agabus. Now tradition says, this is tradition, that Agabus was one of the 70 that was sent out in Luke chapter 10 and that he later died as a martyr. That's tradition. But really, we don't know anything about him other than that he was a prophet. So were there prophets in the New Testament? Yeah, there were. Here in Acts chapter 11 is Agabus. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, says that there were teachers or prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Acts chapter 15 lists two more prophets, Judas and Silas, and calls them prophets. Acts chapter 19, we find out that Philip... The evangelist from Caesarea, the same Philip who evangelized the Ethiopian, the same Philip who took the gospel to the Samaritans. Later on, after he settles down in Caesarea, he has four daughters. Acts 19 says Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, female prophets. Gee, we'll get to that one. We'll deal with that one when we get to it. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, we find that prophecy was a spiritual gift in the early church and that they functioned as prophets and there were prophets in the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12, Paul says that the prophets were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry in order that we might be thoroughly equipped to all of our good works. So were there prophets in the early church? Yeah. Apparently there were quite a few because the Ephesians knew of prophets. They had Antioch prophets. There were prophets in Jerusalem, prophets in Corinth. So it was obviously some sort of a common gift. Are there prophets today in the Agabus sense? And and how did they function? Prophets in the New Testament functioned just like they did in the Old Testament. They had two primary responsibilities. Number one, to foretell the Word of God. That is, to take revelation that was already given and to teach it, to preach it, and to proclaim it as God's Word. But they had a second function, and this is how we see Agabus functioning here, to foretell. There was a predictive revelatory element to the New Testament prophetic office like Agabus did. As you read through the New Testament, you don't get the impression that this was the common function of the prophet. It was an occasional function. So it was both to proclaim and to predict New Testament prophets. So do we have New Testament prophets today? Not in the Agabus sense. Not really in that way. Now, some people say, well, the closest parallel would be a preacher or teacher or a pastor teacher who proclaims the Word of God, they're functioning as a prophet, they're prophets. Well, yeah, in a sense, but I don't like to call myself a prophet or any other teacher a prophet because it really confuses the issue. Because my responsibility and the responsibility of anybody else who teaches is not to give new revelation. It's not to say, thus God says and He's revealing it to me now and then to speak it. It is to take what has already been revealed and to proclaim it. So do we have Agabus-type prophets, predictive prophets? No, I don't believe that we do. Why is that? Because we have here, my friends, all that is necessary for life and for godliness. 
In here is everything that is necessary for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for reproof, for rebuke, for edification, for instruction. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I don't need a prophet. I don't need an appendix in my Bible where I write down the latest revelation that the prophet in the church has given to me and then to keep go back and keep track of whether or not it came to pass or any of that. I don't need any of that. Why? I have the mind and the will of God revealed for me once and for all. I met a prophet one time. I've met several prophets, actually. I was in Bible college. I was at a large Christian conference, not the one that we have in Spokane. This was in Calgary, Alberta, and I was with my classmates. And I was walking out through the resource center at this convention, and I noticed a booth that was up alongside the wall, and I could tell there was something on the banner or something about the booth that kind of clued me in that something wasn't quite balancing here. So I walked over and I engaged this guy in a discussion, come to find out he was a prophet, at least he claimed to be, in the Agabus sense, where he would predict certain things and proclaim God's Word and gave revelation to the churches. And his ministry was all about raising up in the churches other prophets and teaching people how to use their prophetic gifts so that they could speak for God and give new revelation. And So we got into quite a discussion with this guy, and I basically affirmed to him what I'm affirming to you, that because I have the sure word of prophecy, I don't need his prophecy. And I reminded him that as a prophet, he's held to a pretty high standard, that if one thing that he says does not come to pass... By Old Testament standards, he'd be stoned. My thinking, he should have been. He predicts one thing that doesn't come to pass. He's a false prophet. He didn't like that very much. He got him mad at me. He's not the last prophet that I've ever had mad at me. But that's what I tried to share with him, is that I don't need you. I have the Word. Everything I need for life, for godliness, for reproof, for correction, instruction, for the equipping of the saints, it's all right here. And with this sure word that I know is true, I know is God's word, I don't need His little utterances to scribble in the back and then to go about testing them to see if they're true or not. Now, prophets fulfilled their purpose. What was their purpose? Back in Antioch, before any of the New Testament was written, they didn't have a New Testament revelation. They didn't have a completed canon. The books weren't written. By this time, we're only 15 years removed from the crucifixion They don't have the New Testament like you and I do. So prophets serve the function of revealing the mind and the will of God on things. They exercise that role. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that they were the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what has happened to the apostles? They filled their purpose. They have passed from the scene. They are no more. And I believe the same thing is true with prophets. They fulfilled their purpose. They have passed from the scene. We don't need them anymore. Those gifts belong to the infancy stage of the church, and we are not infants anymore. We have the mature, complete, fulfilled revelation of God. So are there prophets today? There are false prophets today. I guess we could say that. But there's nobody out there speaking the mind of God and revealing new truth that you and I have to keep up on, friends. We have the mind and the will of God completely on the matter. Agabus stood up and he spoke. And you see, look how he uses his office, his function here in your text. He indicated by the Spirit. That is, he was using his gift in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God was giving him inspiration. And he spoke the words of God to these people. He indicated to them by the power of the Spirit what was coming to pass. This is a rare event. I don't think it was a common function for prophets to predict future events. But Agabus did. And he begins to predict in the power of the Spirit, by inspiration of the Spirit. It is authoritative. It is the Word of God for them at that time. And he indicates that a famine was coming all over the land, over the whole world, all over the entire Roman Empire. This famine would be widespread. 
Now, unlike modern-day prophets who have an abysmal track record, Agabus was spot on. What he said came to pass. Josephus, a Jewish historian who was not a believer, says that in the year 46 A.D. there was a famine. That was in the reign of Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 A.D. Five years into Claudius' reign, there was a famine. And Josephus indicates a lot of people died because of want of food, and it was brought about by many consecutive years of bad harvests in the reign of Claudius. So what Agabus said was true. We have an extra-biblical source, Josephus, who indicates to us that Agabus' prophecy was right. Luke's recording of history is spot on the money. He was right on, and within a year or two after he gives this prediction, 46 AD, there is indeed a big famine. Now it's little, little phrases like that one, this happened in the reign of Claudius, that helps us to date the events in the book of Acts. If you're in the habit of writing in the margin of your Bible, right at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, write down 46 A.D. Because that's when this is all taking place. That's when the famine occurred. So likely Paul's trip to relieve the famine happened either that year or right after that or right around that time sometime, 46 A.D. Now to put that in perspective, 46 A.D. is how many years after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection? 15 years, right? Now the book of Acts ends in 62, 63, 61 A.D., somewhere in there. So if you're keeping track chronologically, we're halfway through chronologically the time period that the book of Acts covers. So everything that's happened so far, all of this massive expansion, the persecution, the conversion of Paul, all of that has happened within 15 years of the Lord Jesus. So take encouragement from the fact that we're only in Acts for another 15 years. We'll be done at the end of Acts chapter 28. Because it's only 15 more years. Now that kind of puts things into perspective, doesn't it? When you realize that the Apostle Paul evangelized all of the then known world, planted all of those churches, raised up all of those leaders, and so impacted the entire world. And he did it in how long? 15 years. From Acts 13 to 28, 15 years. It is difficult for us to fathom a man who can have that kind of impact in 15 years. You and I would be lucky if we minister for 75 years and are able to get half right what Paul did or even a hundredth of the impact that he had. 15 years and he changed, my friends, the face of history. Second thing I want you to notice, not only the prophecy, but second, I want you to notice the provision. Look at verse 28 or 29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So there is a prophetic utterance. Agabus says there is coming a famine on the entire world. And that famine likely struck, and at that time the believers in Antioch determined to take up a free will offering for the believers who were living in Judea, that is Jerusalem and Lydda and Joppa and all of the surrounding regions around Jerusalem that we've read about thus far. They decide to take up an offering. Now I would expect, and you would expect, that if the Apostle Paul is the teacher in Antioch, that when that church begins to do something that Paul has taught about, that it would reflect his teaching, wouldn't you? In other words, if whatever Paul's way of doing offerings is and taking, collecting money and giving, whatever it is that he's taught this Antioch church, that's what they would do. And that is what they do. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where Paul spends two entire chapters talking about Christian charity and giving and liberal giving and all of that, if you read those chapters along with these verses, you're going to see that the believers in Antioch did exactly what the Apostle Paul modeled for his whole life and his ministry. And what we see is 
really four principles for grace, what I call grace giving. Grace giving is giving or generosity that is not obligated by law. It is not the expression of duty or obligation or law or guilt. Grace giving is the abundant overflow of my heart, which is the recipient of the grace of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and my response in obedience to the grace of God in Christ. I give of myself. That's grace giving. And the New Testament method of giving is grace giving. And I want you to notice four principles that are modeled by the church in Antioch. The first is this. Grace giving is according to need. It's according to need. What was it that prompted their gift? It was the recognition of a need. The believers in Jerusalem were going to have a need because there was a widespread famine. And so they hear about the need through Agabus. And in response to the need, according to that need, they give. Now, I don't think it's wrong for a ministry or a missionary or a church or a person to express their need to an individual and to say, this is what we have need for and we want you to know about it. And then we give it to you. Or they give it to you. A missionary says, I'm going on a mission trip. I have need for X amount of funds. If the Lord lays it on your heart, that's good. There's nothing wrong with letting your needs be known. George Mueller didn't do that. I understand that. A lot of people choose not to do that. That's completely their decision. That's grace. That's their choice. They can do that. But there's nothing inherently wrong with saying, here's what our need is. That's what Agabus did. There's a famine coming. The believers in Judea are going to have a need. And he lets it known to the church in Antioch. They didn't take up the collection before they knew about the need. They give the collection in response to the need. The need is made known and they say, hey, we have the provision to meet that need. And so they give to that need. It's according to need. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, at this present time, your abundance being a supply to their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Giving is in response to a need. They notice the need and they say, we have the ability to meet that need. And God has graced us to do it. We feel like the Lord is leading us to do that. And so we will give to that need. And grace giving is according to need. You give when you see somebody else has a need. Now, why did the Jerusalem church have a need? Why didn't they have money? Were they more hard struck by this famine than any other church in the area? Why is it that Jerusalem didn't have the funds? Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 and 5? For 15 years they've been doing what? Selling their possessions and giving to anybody as they had need within the church. Well, you live off of, you begin selling your possessions and expressing generosity and before long you're going to dwindle down your own personal stash of wealth. Likely that's what happened in Jerusalem. They were a generous church. There was a time when they had an abundance and they turned it over to other people and to meet those needs. And now they have a need, not the abundance, but they have a need And so the Lord raises up Antioch to give to that need. Isn't Antioch going to be affected by the famine? Sure they are. Well, why don't they say, hey, charity starts at home. I'm going to meet my own needs. I'm going to save up for myself and make sure that I have a cushion before I give to anybody else. They were going to be affected by the famine. But the church in Antioch understood this, that the same God who supplies seed for our sowing supplies bread for the eater. And He is able with all sufficiency to make grace abound so that we have abundance, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, for every good work and to meet our own needs. The church in Antioch said, we'll give to it. We may come up short and have a need, but God will raise up somebody else to meet our need. And so they just trusted in the Lord and they gave their abundance to the church in Jerusalem. 
It's according to need. Second thing, it's according to ability. Look what Luke says in verse 29. In proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution. It is in proportion to their means. Grace giving is according to what you and I have been given. It is according to the means that we have. A wealthy individual, a man of many means, will give a larger gift than a a poorer individual. And there were people on both sides of that aisle in the church in Antioch. They were a wealthy city, a commercial city. There were likely businessmen within their congregation, men of tremendous means who gave tremendous gifts. There were household slaves in their congregation, people of little means who gave little gifts. But the issue is not in the percentage. The issue is not in the size of the gift. What is it that counts? It is in accordance with the blessing that they have received. They determine to give a gift that matches the blessing they've been given. Whether it is a small blessing or a great blessing, it is an expression of that blessing in response to God. And it is an expression of their love for the brethren. So whether the gift was $100,000 by a rich businessman or the gift was $100 by a poor widow in the congregation, it both was an expression of their means and their love for the saints and their worship and obedience to Christ, and they gave liberally of themselves. Any of the disciples, not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the middle class, not just the leadership, any of the disciples, it was available to everybody, they gave according to their means. And they had the means to give. A wealthy city, I think they probably turned over a very large offering to Paul and to Barnabas to take with them to Jerusalem. It's according to means. Does that mean that there's no percentage? That's right, there's no percentage. It's not 10%? No. Not 20%? No. Friends, the day of of law-obligated giving and tithes is over. Well, you say that could be abused, couldn't it? Sure it's abused. It's abused all the time. There are Christians who never even give God a tip, let alone a tithe. They don't even give Him a good tip. They don't sacrificially give liberally of an abundance of their heart. It's not an expression of worship. It's an expression of obligation for them. It's abused all the time. But the principle is that you see a need, you have the means, and you say, I'll meet that need. And I will be the vessel through which God will glorify Himself in the expression of my generosity and my love and obedience to Him. And I give. Listen, folks, I sometimes wish that God just gave us a percentage in the New Testament. Just said, here it is. 5%, 10%, 15%, 25%, 5%, 10%, 15%, 25%, whatever it is. 30, just give me a number, and I can meet the number, and then I know that the rest is mine. That sounds generous, doesn't it? No, not at all. The standard has not been done away with. The standard has been raised. Because I cannot no longer, I can no longer view my possessions as so much belonging to me and so much belonging to God, and so I give God His and I can keep the rest and do whatever I want with it. It's mine. That's not the mentality. The mentality is, all of my seed belongs to the Lord. So the question is, how much do I take to live off of? That's the mentality of the New Testament giving. It's not a matter of percentage. Sometimes I wish there was a percentage. But then my giving would be an expression of law, not of love. So there's no percentage. There's no amount. There's no compulsion. There's no guilt. It's grace giving. It's according to my means. If I've been blessed greatly one month, then I give greatly. If I've been blessed less another month, then I give less. And it's not the issue of a percentage. That's something you have to work out with the Lord. And it's far more difficult because, listen, now every time I receive anything, I have to hold it in my hands and say, well, Lord, this is yours. Now what do you want me to do with it? And then I have to check my motive, check my generosity, 
and the position of my spirit before the Lord and view what I have as his and then make a wise decision and do what the Lord leads me to do with that and what he lays upon my heart to do with that as an expression of my love and worship and obedience and thankfulness to him. That's much more difficult than cutting God a check for X percent every month and thinking that you fulfilled your obligations. My obligation is that he owns everything. All of it. There's nothing that I have, nothing that you have, or nothing that you will ever receive that is not his. That's much more difficult, isn't it? According to need, it's according to ability to give. Each gives according to his own ability. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 3, and 12, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. If the readiness is present, is acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what a person does not have. Everything that we give, our expression of giving, is according to what we have. Third, not only an expression or according to need and according to ability, but third, it's voluntary. Look what Paul says. Each of the disciples... Each of them determined to send a contribution in relief for the brethren living in Judea. It was a voluntary offering. It was open to everybody. And I can imagine the word just went out through the church in Antioch. Hey, there's a need in Jerusalem. We have the ability to respond to that need. So we're taking up a free will offering to send to the brethren who are suffering in Judea. And we're going to be a blessing to them. So if you'd like to give to it, give to it. It was voluntary. They didn't show starving pictures of starving children in Jerusalem to pull at their heartstrings. They didn't lay upon the disciples and the brethren any kind of external motivation, any kind of extrinsic compulsion to do it, because Paul says it is the expression of our grace and not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. It's not according to law, it's according to love. It's not the response to guilt, it's the response to grace. It's not an obligation, it is obedience. That's grace-giving. Isn't that freeing to know that? That my giving to the Lord is an expression of all of that, and there was no compulsion upon them. They didn't receive a letter that said, hey, you haven't tithed this month, and we're taking up an extra 5% for the brethren in Judea, so cough it up. We can't wait to see you back in our midst again. Nothing like that. No compelling, no arm-twisting, no heavy-handed, Fundraising tactics. They didn't pass the plate until it was full. They just said, here's our needs. We have the ability. Do as the Lord provides. And as He gives you. Fourth thing I want you to notice about grace giving is that it is responsible giving. They took their funds and they turned them over to Paul and Barnabas, who then went to Jerusalem and they turned those funds over to elders in Jerusalem. There's something that's very significant there, my friends, is that It was not Paul and Barnabas. They didn't send this large offering just with anybody. The church entrusted this large offering to two men who were proven and trusted and reliable and trustworthy. And they gave it to Paul and to Barnabas, and they took the offering. And I think it was a substantial offering. I think it was a large offering. In terms of today's uh, today's money, I would have to speculate and guess that it would have to be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of offering. Why would I say that? Because they took up an offering for a whole region, not just a few believers in one church, but in the believers in Judea. That's Joppa and Lydda and Jerusalem and all the surrounding area. Thousands of believers. It wasn't a couple hundred bucks. That doesn't go far among thousands of believers. It was a substantial offering. That's why they sent it by Paul and Silas. They gave it to reliable men 
There were wise men who then took those funds and they turned them over to proven, tested, qualified men, the elders of the churches in that area. And they gave them to the elders and said, distribute them as need be amongst the people who have needs. Friends, you and I have a responsibility when we give our funds, when we give our money, to be wise stewards of our money and to turn those resources over to the need and to people who will make sure that the money goes to meet the need that they're raising money for. When I give a check, I want to make sure that it's not going to a televangelist who's going to air condition his doghouse. It needs to be spent wisely. It needs to be handed over to responsible, trusted, and trustworthy men and women. And you and I should give responsibly because we understand it's the Lord's. And you and I are stewards of it. So when we give it, we better make sure that it's being used properly and rightly. It's grace-giving, friends. It's according to need. It's according to ability. It's voluntary. And it should be responsible giving. Wise decision-making use of the Lord's resources. Just two things that I want you to note before we close that are sort of historical significance here. And I didn't know where I could put these into the message that it wouldn't sort of interrupt the flow. So I'll do it at the end so it interrupts the flow. First thing is if you're in the habit of writing in the margin of your Bibles, at the end of this chapter, not only write 46 AD, but also write Galatians 2, 1 through 10, if it's not already in a margin or a note. In the book of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2, Paul makes mention of two trips that he made to Jerusalem. One of them was the three years after he was converted. Do you remember that? We looked at that at Acts chapter 9. He went to Jerusalem. He was there two weeks, and they ran him out of town trying to kill him. So the disciples ushered him out of Jerusalem and sent him away to Tarsus. That was the first trip. That's in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul makes mention of a second trip 14 years after his conversion where he went up with Barnabas. And Paul mentions in Galatians 2 that there was another man who came. His name was Titus. That's this trip. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us that there was something other than an offering discussed at this trip. On this trip, when they brought up the offering, it was not just money and funds and famine that was discussed. Paul makes mention in Galatians 2 that the hot topic was circumcision. Now Luke doesn't mention that here because he's saving that up for Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. That's going to become an issue. But it becomes an issue even earlier as Paul makes this travel up to Jerusalem. Paul says he brought Titus with him. And there were brethren there who were trying to spy out his liberty to creep in and begin to impose circumcision in on Gentile believers and to say, once you're saved, now you have to be circumcised. And so this was heatedly discussed at this trip, circumcision. So Paul goes up, he goes up with Barnabas and Titus, he brings the offering, and while he's there, this issue of circumcision comes up. Luke doesn't mention it, but Paul fills us in on the details. This was heatedly discussed. And it wasn't the apostles in Jerusalem who were doing this. These were false brethren who were secretly creeping into the church. And look at this. It's only a couple years after Gentiles are being saved and already false teachers are praying on the church, bringing their men in. And Paul sees this happening. And if you're a false teacher and you want to install circumcision as a requirement on Gentile believers, who would be your number one target to try and win over to that way of thinking? It would be Paul. right? You'd want to get Paul on your side because he's the pastor of a large, growing Gentile church. So that's what they do. In Galatians chapter 2, when Paul comes up, he's hit with the subject of circumcision. And it's not going to go away. It's going to be dealt with finally in, in Acts chapter 15. Second little historical detail that I want you to note here is the reference to elders. This is the first time in church history that we read of elders. Hasn't been in Acts before this. Doesn't mean they didn't exist. But this is the first time we read of it. So we see that only 15 years after the Lord Jesus the church has already recognized this office of overseer in their midst. 
And it would be another 15 years before Paul would give the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, and before Peter in 1 Peter 5 would give qualifications for elders. But already they have turned over large portions of the oversight ministry and the shepherding of the flock to the elders who are in Jerusalem. So they're gifted, qualified, shepherding pastor teachers in Jerusalem that the disciples or the apostles have now discipled and matured to the point where they can oversee this ministry, and they've turned it over to them. This is the first reference to elders in the book of Acts. So back to grace giving. Grace giving, it is according to need, it is according to ability, it is completely voluntary, and it should be responsible giving. And now I just pray that God would grace us and give us the grace to be grace givers. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for all that You've given to us in Christ. And we understand that all that we give to You is only giving from You and to You because everything we have comes from Your hand. And who are we, God, that we have been given so much? We're so small, insignificant, puny, little sinful human beings, and yet You bless us beyond measure. And You open for us the windows of heaven and pour out for us such blessing that we cannot even receive it. And I pray, God, that You would create within us generous and liberal liberal and, and charitable hearts that are willing to give and give liberally to You and to Your work and back to You as an expression of all that You've done for us in Christ. Thank You, Father, that You do that work and we pray that You would help us to remember the principles of grace giving. We're not under law, we're under grace and of course that standard is so much higher but we thank You that You give us the grace and the ability to live according to grace and to give so generously to You. We thank You for the abundance that we enjoy. We thank You for the opportunity to worship You and to learn these lessons from Your Word today and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.